just say it's a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning. It's wonderful being amongst you. Just say thank you so much for your support for us. I know you pray for us regularly. Uh, I know you obviously financially support us as a family, and we feel a huge blessing for that. We feel like very much so we're planting a church in Istanbul, but actually King's Church Kingston have been so integral in planting a church in Istanbul and seeing the kingdom spread and the kingdom grow. And actually, we've all got the Gospels to go to the ends of the earth. We know that. And actually, it's a very kind of practical way that you've been involved in that. So thank you for supporting us. Thank you. It's a joy being back with close friends. Uh, But thank you so much. Let me just pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are good. We want to thank you that you are loving. We want to thank you the wonder of the gospel that the gospel is for all peoples of all nations, of all tribes. We want to thank you. The gospel perfectly translates and is contextualized to every culture. We want to thank you that your message is for all. We want to thank you, Lord, that you want to speak to the people of Kingston. You want to speak to the people in this church today. And I want to pray, God, would you speak through me? I want to pray with your words, stir our hearts. I want to pray, please, God. Uh, I want to pray, would we hear your voice? Lord, I want to pray in a sense, would you quiet other voices and would we hear you? Would, we, uh, would you stir our hearts? Would you stir affection for you in a greater way and a greater appreciation for who you are as Lord and Savior? Amen. So my plan today is to preach from one of Jesus' parables, uh, the parable of the great banquet. So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 14, please. Just while you're turning to that, let me give you a book recommendation. In fact, it's the same book I recommended last time I was here in July. Because uh, let's be honest, normally people require a bit of pushing to get something. It's a, uh, is there a presentation? It's a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And I just think it's a superb book. To be honest, quite a lot of the cultural insights, in fact, pretty much most cultural insights uh, I'm preaching, that I'll be sharing as I go through one of Jesus' stories today, do come from this book. It's really eye-opening. It's fantastic living in the Middle East because you get to see things, uh, how they operate in the Middle Eastern culture, but sometimes you sort of implicitly see them. But actually, when the book makes it explicit and says, this is what part of the Middle Eastern culture goes, is like, and you go, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen how this works. Uh, and so, obviously, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man living in a culture in a set time, and actually, therefore, it's really helpful to understand how the culture worked so we can actually truly grasp some of the things he taught. So let me encourage you to get that book at some point. It's fairly heavy going at times, but it's just brilliant. So today, my goal is just to tell you a story. I want to spend time with one of Jesus' parables. You see, when Jesus taught, as you know, as most of you know probably, he primarily taught through parables. He taught theological truth through stories. Now, the parables of Jesus are a bit like a house that we get to enter in, And we get to look at the world through the windows and through the rooms of that house. Parables primarily aren't to be a launching point for a theological point we want to make. So they're not the kind of starting point where we find the theological point and then we explain things in the abstract. Actually, how Jesus taught was pretty much he didn't really reduce things to that. He taught all theological truth through stories, through metaphor, through simile. He was a metaphorical theologian. So I want to just spend time in one of Jesus' stories. I'm just going to tell it. I'm going to embellish some of the details at times, try and draw out uh, what it's about. So let me set the scene for this story. We're entering this. We're entering midway through Luke's gospel. Now, in the previous couple of chapters, you'll have 
uh, if you know Luke's gospel, you'll see that Jesus has been clashing regularly with the religious leaders of the day. You see, Jesus crossed some of the ethnic and the ceremonial boundaries for holiness that those people had set in place. So they said, look, to be holy, to be sort of pure, you can't do these things. And then Jesus kept on crossing these boundaries. So, for example, he had compassion on people who were unclean or who were sick that other people wouldn't touch. He would heal people on the day of rest, which the religious leaders thought was outrageous. He taught about the kingdom of God and about righteousness of God in a way that the religious leaders of the time didn't do. So he was teaching in a new way. And actually, lots of his teaching was specifically to challenge how the religious leaders were teaching at the time. And so what you see is you see this escalation point arising where pretty much every time Jesus is in a room with the religious leaders, you can almost get this sensing crackling of tension of what's Jesus going to say this time that will make them further oppose him? To make him, I mean, ultimately their goal is to kill him. But you see this progression as the ante gets raised, as Jesus does another thing that offends them. And so we're midway through this, and what's happened is Jesus has been invited, it says in verse 1, Jesus has been invited to someone's, a Pharisee leader's house, a ruler's house. So he goes along, and the religious leaders there are asking questions. I think they're watching him very carefully, they're listening intently, but partly with the kind of goal of, can we trip him up? Can we see something that's an excuse where we can actually take him out of the equation, that we can uh, eliminate him? But actually, the scene is a pretty standard Middle Eastern scene. You see, what happened was when a visiting teacher came to town, uh, he would be invited to someone's house for dinner. Oh, there's a little picture there. He'd be invited to someone's house for dinner, and then they would just ask that that teacher their views on politics, their views on religion, and the teacher would share things. So people would sit at a table, reclining at a table like that, and then because the, the teacher came... Actually, there'd be the people in the room like this, but on the outside of the room, other people from the town would come. It would kind of be open to the public, but they'd be on the outside of the room watching in, seeing how the conversation emerged. And so that's probably the scene we find in this moment here. And then, we read from verse 14, uh, one of the guests turns to Jesus and says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, The Jews' understanding was that in the future, the Messiah would come. Now, in Scripture, the Messiah was seen as one that God had anointed. He was the chosen one who God was going to raise up to rescue his people. That was their understanding. Scripturally, that seemed to be the case, what the Messiah was. But they had a particular understanding of it, which was a military king would come who would destroy their enemies. uh, And that's what they were looking for, someone who would drive out probably the Roman Empire at the time. And then in Scripture, there's this picture of uh, when the Messiah came and when he conquered their enemies, as, as a king, he would hold a lavish banquet. And they were expecting that the godly Jews would be the ones who would be invited to come and celebrate that banquet with him. Now, so really they're saying, when, when they ask this question, they're really finding out, hey, what does Jesus think about this idea of a messianic banquet? How does he interpret it? They're trying to get Jesus' understanding of what he thinks of the Messiah and what he thinks of the coming kingdom of God. Now, 
The sorry, just giving a bit of background information. Now, the original understanding of the Messianic banquet can be found in Isaiah 25. Those verses will come up on the screen, I think. Let me just read them to you. It says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up from this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, the vision of Isaiah for this messianic banquet was one that included all people. It was a beautiful picture of Jews, of non-Jews, all coming together for a feast at God's invitation. And obviously, we see the end picture in Revelation. Again, you see this picture of marriage feast. Feasting is an image of kind of celebration and victory in the, uh, that we see in Scripture. And but over time, so you've got this amazing vision in Isaiah 25, but over time, the Jews' understanding of this had changed. So you get the book of Enoch in the second century BC, uh, which was written, and that was kind of expressed lots of views of the Jews at the time. And this is what it said about the banquet. It speaks of a banquet with the Messiah and affirms that the Gentiles will be included. So you got that bit right. But the angel of death will be present and will use his sword to destroy those Gentiles. In fact, it talks about the fact the Jews who are invited to the feast have to walk through the blood of the Gentiles to come to enter the feast. Or you've got uh, the Qumran community, the, the community that kind of wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, uh, kind of a religious Jewish group. Uh, they wrote about the Messiah's rule and his banquet. And this is what they said. They said... No one can attend who's smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. So you've got this glorious vision in Isaiah 25 of a feast which God invites people to, who of all peoples, sort of everyone's welcome, at God's invitation. And then you see this change where it's actually just for the select godly Jews. The Gentiles aren't invited. Those who are lame, those who are slightly outcasts or outsiders aren't invited. And that's the view that Jews of the age were probably living with, with their view of the Messianic banquet. It had been twisted from how Isaiah viewed it. Anyway, so they're saying, how does Jesus view the Messianic banquet? They want to get his take on it. And of course, Jesus being the metaphorical theologian he is, responds by saying, let me tell you a story. So let's look at the story. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've brought, a, uh, I've bought a, a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and, uh, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife 
Philip Elwood, like to point out he's not here. And I cannot come. <laughs> he has been noted for next time I see him. Anyway, uh, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to him, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So, there's a man, and he's arranging a big banquet. He plans to invite many people. Now, culturally, what would have happened? A few days before, the manservant would have gone around the town saying, look, I'm holding a banquet, and he'd invite people, and he'd find out who, wants, who was going to come to this banquet. Okay, so that's already taken place. So he's gone around the town, he's found out who's coming, uh, the list has been made, and it, in response to how people have responded, he's then cooked the right quantity of food for this lavish and magnificent feast. Okay, so that's the backdrop of it. And then on the day of the feast, when the feast is ready, then he goes to those who've been invited and says, hey, look, the feast is ready, come. Come, let's eat together. Okay, so that's the backdrop, and that's the understanding we've got to have how it would have worked in this story. So, he's, so the servant goes out with the invitation, look, it's all ready, come in. And that's when they make the excuses. Let me try and put it in context. Uh, quite a number of us were at Philip and Caroline's wedding yesterday. It was a fantastic day. So th about three or four months ago, they sent out wedding invitations through electronic means, because that's the age we live in. So we got emails. We responded back saying, yes, we're coming. Now, imagine we'd come. Uh, Jason was Toastmaster, did a great job. So Jason then calls everyone uh, in the marquee, says, look, it's now time for dinner. Uh, come sit down. And it's at that point we go to Philip and Caroline, all of us, one at a time, and go, you know what? I'm so sorry. Actually, I can't make this bit. I've got to go. And we all just disappear out, and it's just left with Philip and Caroline sitting there. I think, I mean, Philip's a very gracious man, isn't he? I suspect he would be fuming. But that's really what's taking place in this instance, Okay. People had accepted an invitation and then at the last minute, and they pull it. And they've got excuses. Yes, they've got excuses. But actually, all their excuses don't really stack up. Let me talk about them. So they may seem genuine. For example, the first person says, look, I'm buying a piece of land. Uh, I now need to check it out. But the reality was, in the time... Buying a piece of land was a really long and drawn-out process. It's, it took time. Before you, before you buy, land was so valuable and so precious in the Middle East, you wouldn't just go and buy a piece of land and then afterwards go and check on it. You'd first of all go and check, what's the soil like? What's it like for irrigation? Does it just flood the whole time if rains come? You, you'd ask those kind of questions, you'd talk. And then after you'd checked out the land, you'd then do a negotiation process. I mean, it's a bit like uh, going to Philip's wedding and then sort of you getting there, Jason gets us to sit down and then saying to Philip and uh, Caroline, I'm so sorry, 
I've just bought a house. I now need to go and have a look at it and see what it's like. We don't do that. When we buy houses in the UK, uh, we spend time looking at it. We make sure it's surveyed, etc., and then we buy it. So we might put an offer. But we certainly don't just buy it and then look afterwards and see what's it like. So it's... Now, it could be... If the guy had wanted to make a genuine excuse, he could have done it. He could have gone, you know what, I've been negotiating about this piece of land for weeks. The dealer's said that if I don't buy it tonight, he'll sell it to another person. I'm so sorry, I've got to sort it out tonight. But he didn't do that. He just said, look, I've just bought a piece of land. I'm, I need to go and check it out. It was an excuse that really was a smokescreen. And the, 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 the host would have known it was not a valid excuse. Okay, so the servant goes to the first person, that's the excuse. He then goes to the second person who says, look, I'm so sorry, I've bought five uh, yoke of oxen. I now need to go and check on them. It's a bit like me saying, you know what, I've just bought a really expensive second-hand car, but now I need to go and test drive it to see if it works. Because when people bought oxen, they were a huge expense. They were a huge kind of investment. And you tested them out before you got them you would make sure they pulled at the same kind of strength, that they tired at the same rate. Otherwise, it was a pointless exercise, having spent all this money. So again, it wasn't a real excuse. In fact, it was just an insult to the host. And then you come to the third person, who is so rude. He doesn't even say, excuse me. He just says, look, I've got, I'm married. I can't come. Uh, but... Really, in essence, this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, I have a woman at the back of the house. I'm busy with her. Don't expect me to be at your banquet. I mean, it's really that kind of offensive. And in the culture, you were meant to speak honorably about your wife and kind of you weren't meant to speak so brazenly. But again, just an offense. So you got these people three times making excuses that were just blatantly not even an attempt to be polite and say, look, I can't. And in a sense, they weren't even trying to hide the fact they didn't want to they, were, they, they weren't trying to hide the fact they didn't want to come, and they were deliberately trying to humiliate and insult the host. Okay? You've got to understand that. It was an intentional snub. It was an intentional dishonoring of the host. And what's interesting is that the servant goes to the first three, three guests. So the first three guests he goes to says this, and he goes, my word, I think I've, I'm going home to speak to my master, because it realistically, it seems like they've colluded. It seems like the village have colluded. Those who've been invited, because those who've been invited, the first three say no. The servant goes, you know what, I think everyone's going to go around this excuse of them trying to pull off and cause this banquet to collapse. So he goes back home and speaks to the master. Now, the key question is this, and I think this is the climax of the story. How will the host respond? Everyone's deliberately humiliated him. Everyone's deliberately insulted him. This banquet he's paid on huge expense to do is now suddenly looks like nothing's going to happen. How's he going to respond? And that's a key question. It says in verse 21 this, the master of the house became angry. You know, that was the right response. It was right. He'd been publicly humiliated. When there's injustice, when you've been humiliated, when someone has wronged you, the natural response is anger. Now, the question is this. What will the host do with his anger? 
What will he do with it? You see, the host has every right to seek revenge on those who've wronged him. You know, when you're dishonoured, when you're humiliated, the default response can be to want to crush those who've humiliated you, want to take revenge. And actually, in the Middle East, you see that again and again. You see these cycles of revenge that take place. You see, for honour needs to be protected, it needs to be upheld. And when someone insults you, when you lose face, the natural response is to seek revenge. The natural response is to try and preserve face, trying to keep face by actually responding against those who've dishonoured you. Yet, what does the master do in this story? You see, anger and injustice, if you've encountered it, if you've been, it causes energy within you, doesn't it? You know when you're angry, there's this genuine sense of you feel this energy within you. It's not just kind of this abstract thing, unless you're not human, and then it might be. But if you're a human being, when you're angry, it's a physical thing, and there's this kind of energy that comes upon with it. And the question is, what does he do with this anger? There's a need to respond, but how does he respond to this energy? The master responds, and this is a quote from Kenneth Bailey, he chooses to reprocess his anger into grace. The master chooses to reprocess his anger into grace. So he focuses, he's been snubbed, he's been humiliated, he's lost face, and his response is to extend an invitation to the poor to the cripple, to the blind and to the lame. The very people who were not expected to be invited to the banquet, in response to his anger uh, and the energy of that, he processes it into grace uh, and he invites those who are normally overlooked uh, to come and he welcomes them in. The very people who the religious leaders were saying, you know what, you should be barred, you're not invited. And you see, the servant does this. He goes out, he gathers in those who are lame, who are crippled, who are poor, brings them to this feast. And you see, the servant, I think in this sense, you get the sense of there's a bit of excitement in terms of, what should we do now? Look, it's still a bit empty, but I've brought in all those people. What now, master? Kind of, what's he going to do with this energy that's still in the room? And the master says this, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in that my house may be filled. So the question is, who are the ones who are in the highways and the hedges? This is an incredibly strong case that these are the ones who are outside the boundaries, that they're the ones that are beyond. They're the ones actually who are the non-Jews. They're the ones who are the Gentiles. The ones, again, the religious leaders were saying, you know what, they're the ones whose blood will be flowing and we'll be walking through that to celebrate the feast. And Jesus is going, no, no, no. They're the ones who I'm inviting to this feast. And... So Jesus paints in this parable, he paints this picture of a messianic feast which restores the beauty of Isaiah's vision uh, where the Gentiles and non-Jews and those beyond the borders of Israel uh, are invited in, where the downtrodden, where the weak, where the broken, where the poor are invited in. But obviously, there's a bit of a sting to it, isn't there? Because actually, the ones who are expected to be the ones at the party are the ones who are excluded. 
the ones who thought they would be the ones, oh, no, we're definitely there. Actually, they seem to be the ones who aren't there. So we'll go on. Moreover, the host tells his people, he says this, his servant, he says this, compel the people, compel the people to come that my house may be filled. Now, I don't think that meant that the servant was there and these unwilling people, we literally got and we dragging this trail of unwilling people to the house. I don't think that's a thing. But I do think when people are outcasts, when people aren't expected to be invited in, just saying, hey, come along, people don't necessarily respond to. They're thinking, no, 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 you've got the wrong person. I'm not the kind of person who would be invited to this kind of party. You know what? I've never, I've never experienced undeserved grace. I've never experienced undeserved kindness before. That's not for me. So the servant's role in that situation is to compel and say, no, it is for you. Genuinely speaking, you too, even though you think you're an outsider, and in fact, lots of religious types think you're an outsider as too. You're invited. Come. And so there's this persuading of people who generally think they're not good enough, that they don't meet the standards, that they're those who are outsiders and should remain outsiders. So the servant has to persuade, has to pull them in, because otherwise they won't come. I remember when I was working at this church, uh, good days. Uh, when I was working at the church, we did uh, an alpha course supper once, and one of the questions, one of the things at the end of it was just people filled in a form, as you do, and it said, any questions? And the question that one person wrote was, will I be, will God be able to forgive me for the wrongs I've done? Will I ever be good enough to be welcomed by him? And the answer of this parable is yes. Actually, the, ki- the, the, the host says, yeah, compel him to come. Compel her to come, because actually my grace extends. So when they say, you've got the wrong person, that's not me, then actually it's, no, that is you. And, we've got to com- and the servant compels people to come. So you've got the parable finishing, and you've got the lame and the weak and the poor and the downtrodden, and they're sitting at the table while the servant is now travelling further afield uh, to those who live further away with the message, come, the feast is ready, you're welcome too. And then Jesus turns to the religious leaders uh, who host this dinner party, and he says, for I tell you, looking at them, none of those men who were invited shall eat my banquet, shall taste my banquet. You see, the ones who were initially invited, uh, the ones who deliberately insulted the host and made their excuses, they won't celebrate the feast. And Jesus is speaking, as he says this, directly looking at the religious leaders. You see, they were the ones who expected to be sitting at the messianic banquet. But Jesus said to me, you know what, you, you have actually rejected the Messiah. You have rejected the host of the banquet. The invitation was extended to you, but you have rejected the host. But in your place will come others who you don't expect. They will fulfill the vision of Isaiah 25. And the tragedy is this. The people of Israel's story was that they were chosen as God's people. They were called to be a light to the nations of the world, to display the faithfulness and the goodness of God. 
In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah who would rescue the world and rescue, uh, would come through the Jews. And here in this parable, you've got the Messiah. He's there. He's amongst them. Day in, day out, he's teaching in the synagogues. The crowds are gathering amongst him. Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of the prophetic hope of a Messiah. The crowds are grasping it. The outcasts, the broken, the unworthy ones, they're grasping it. But the religious leaders aren't. And actually the one who was to be the Messiah, they're actively rejecting. And Jesus is looking at them and going, you know what? You won't enter the feast. And you know what? Uh, so that's really the story. That's what I want to explain. I want to spend half an hour really sharing a story. Let me just really just land this by talking, how do we apply this for us? What does it mean for us in Kingston in the 21st century, 2,000 years later? Jesus is saying that the Messianic banquet is starting. Jesus' ministry was to the people of Israel. I mean, that's where he spent his time. Jesus taught in the synagogues. He taught the religious leaders. But Jesus' ministry, as we know, crossed ethnic boundaries. It crossed, sorry, it crossed boundaries that religious leaders have set up. He welcomed the sick. He welcomed the poor. He welcomed the untouchables and the outcast. He was called the friend of sinners. Now, that wasn't a title that people used as a praise title. That was a title people used that this holy man associates with all these people who are unclean. It was a derogatory term, but that's what he did. He reached to those uh, who were the unlikely ones. But, as we know, the religious leaders also turned their back on him. And in teaching this parable, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you know what, I'm the host. I invited the religious leaders, but they've rejected the invitation. So I've extended the invitation to the weak, to the overlooked, and to the sick. And the crowds came to him. And they responded, by and large, lots of them, to his welcome. Yet, at the end of Jesus' life, he commissioned his disciples, and he said, look, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, verse 8, he says, look, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what we see in the early church. The message of the gospel, the invitation to the banquet, stretches to people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues. And Jesus in this parable is saying, the, is telling, as a host, he's telling his servant, look, now go beyond. Go to the hedges, go to the highways, go beyond what's uh, there. And actually, that's fulfilled. Jesus didn't fulfill that, but that was fulfilled when his disciples took the gospel to the ends of the earth. The messianic banquet is starting. And the question for you and I is this. How are we responding to the invitation of the banquet? You see, according to this parable, actually everyone's invited, but some people won't attend. And whether, according to this parable, whether you attend the banquet or not is all to do with how you respond to the host. Do you respond to the invitation? You see, the big story of Scripture is this. Humankind has turned its back on God. 
and said, you know what, I don't need you. I don't need your wisdom. I'm my own boss. I live my own way. Life is about me and living the way that I want to live and really sticking up two fingers to God. That's a, that's a story of human's predicament. There's been a turning away from the living God to go, I'm going my own way. And then when we turned our back on God's kindness and rejected him, God, in his anger, could have retaliated. He could have rejected people forever. Instead, he reprocessed his anger into grace. He reprocessed his anger into grace. He made a plan, a salvation plan, to rescue mankind that had turned away from the living God uh, so that they could then be back in relationship with him and live with him forever. He did this by sending Jesus as the Messiah to rescue his people so that they could dwell with him in this life and in the life to come, so that they could share in the messianic banquet. In fact, this invitation and the invitation that you're given is so costly that it was paid for by Jesus' death and resurrection. It cost everything. But there's an invitation. And the question is, you're invited. Everyone's invited. The question is this, how do you respond to the host? How are you going to respond to this invitation? Secondly, not only are we guests who are invited to the banquet, we're actually, if we're those who are following Jesus, we end up being servants to the host. And there are certain things that that means we do. It means our role as the servants is to go around and to invite all people and to be guests at this banquet. Secondly, we need to be those who expect to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. If we're responding to God's commission, the church will be messy the church is a messy place because the church will end up being a hospital where people who are broken, beaten up, wounded, outcasts come in, are healed, are touched by grace, are equipped, and then are his representatives. If the gospel is impacting things like Jesus' gospel impacted when he taught about the kingdom, the church will be a messy place because it will draw all kinds of people who aren't, don't have life sorted, don't have everything together, but the gospel will bring a change. And actually, the gospel is so attractive for those who kind of recognize there's a need. So we need to be those who share the gospel with those who recognize there's a need and who are unlikely candidates, if you like. The ones that religious leaders would say, that's not for the gospel, the kingdom's not for them. The gospel's not for them. Thirdly, the church needs to be a church that's persistent. Uh, if there are people who don't know and have never experienced the grace of God and haven't known any kindness in their lives, actually, that they, to get people to genuinely believe they're invited requires persistence. It requires going again and again, saying, no, look, you are invited. As a church, if we get rejected once, we need to keep going again. Fourthly, as a church, you, us, we need to be involved with seeing that the gospel doesn't just stay in this village this town, but goes to the ends of the earth. You see, the picture of Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10 is this. Let me just read you a couple of verses. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb and clothed in white robes. And they shouted, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. See, as a church, we've got to continue to be involved in uh, seeing that the gospel goes further, that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. need to be committed in terms of, I know you are with Istanbul, and I know you are with other things, but really a heartbeat that says we want to be praying, we want to be giving, we want to be going and sending. In terms of us in Turkey at the moment, there's just a wind of opportunity. I think God's very gracious to us. So we're planting in a district of 600,000. Istanbul is a city of 20 million, say. But the district we're in, 600,000 people. Actually, when we planted our church six months ago, there were no other... Oh, there was one evangelical church, but it was actually just moved. So there were no evangelical churches that preached really the gospel in that area. So we planted a church. The next week, another church planted in the area, uh, about two kilometers, three kilometers away from us. Two months ago, another church planted in that area. So you've got three churches in the space of six months that are planting in this area. Obviously, 600,000 people, three times, four times the size of Kingston-upon-Thames. So it's still, we've got our church of about 30 people, another church of about 30, and another one of about five, ten. So God's at work. Obviously, last week we saw someone saved. We're going to do baptisms in a couple of weeks' time and hopefully see a couple of people get baptized. God's at work and God's eager as the host of this party to extend grace to those who don't know. But you know what? It's not just for Turkey. Actually, in the Middle East, so many people just believe Jesus is a prophet. But he's more than that. He's the Messiah who comes and invites people to a banquet. And people need to hear that. And the only way they will hear that is by people going, is by people standing up and explaining, look, this is who this Jesus is. We need to be committed to seeing people get sent to the ends of the earth. Cities like Baku in the Middle East, Cairo, Yerevan, uh, Beirut, they're all places, just to throw out just five cities, which desperately need the gospel, which we as New Frontiers would be looking to plant into in the coming years, probably doing the same model of language learning for a number of years, planting a church. In fact, a guy called Scott's here today. Uh, he's working in northern India. Uh, so he's there planting a church again with his family in a district called Uttar Pradesh. Now let me just get these statistics just so you realize the need. 0.5% of that district would be Christians. 200 million people living in that district. The gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. There need to be more people moving and living there who actually know who Jesus is, who can tell other people, look, there's an invitation, there's a banquet, let's go. At the moment in Turkey, you have... If you filled up, you've heard me say this illustration before, but let me just indulge myself. Uh, if, you, in, if you filled uh, Wembley Stadium with a representative sample of people from Turkey, so the 80,000 or so fans were all taken from Turkey, you would expect eight people in the crowd to be Christians who love Jesus, know the Bible, trust him. There's a big work, but... We have got a saviour who's committed to reprocessing his anger for people's rebellion into grace. We have got a saviour who was willing to love so much the outcasts, the ones outside the boundaries, that he was willing to come to earth, live as a man, die on a cross, be raised to life to conquer death, so that the invitation to the messianic banquet is there. And so let me just urge you as a church, thank you so much for your support. 
But let me just encourage you to keep going to get that message out there because we have a good God who's committed. And for those of you who are maybe here today who are looking into Christianity, let me urge you, look at Jesus. Respond to the invitation to the banquet. Respond to the one who was willing to buy a ticket for that banquet for you with his life.